Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. And welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa, and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. It's approximately 4.01, and first up on the show, we're going to be speaking with David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective, and he'll be bringing listeners some very good news about the Migration Amendment Prohibiting Items in the Immigration Detention Facilities Bill 2020, which would give sweeping unchecked powers to the Minister to the Minister for Home Affairs to ban almost any item in detention, including mobile phones, and vastly expand the search and seizure powers of private security contractors. We don't have a lot of good news on this show, so I'll let David share that with you. And then... We'll also speak with him about the right to protest. It's still stage four restrictions and we're still in the middle of a pandemic and Victoria has had the longest lockdown in the world. And so we'll speak to him. We've, we've actually had quite a lot of discussion over the last month or so in regards to the right to protest and we'll speak to David about what's been happening there in regards to an action that was meant to happen over the weekend at the Mantra Hotel. Then after David, we will speak with Dr Maria O'Sullivan, who is a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Law um, at Monash University and a member of the Carsten Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash Uni. And Dr Maria will speak about the right to protest in a pandemic. She will talk about how public health imperatives need to be balanced against the right to protest and things like the criminalisation of protest. And also, Maria will be speaking more generally about the COVID restriction, such as the recent challenge to the curfew heard in the Victorian Supreme Court last week. So, we've got quite a packed show, and without any further ado, let's go on to David. You've heard about the annexation of Palestinian land, but now join Free Palestine Melbourne and West Bank tour guide Iheb Rafri for a virtual tour of the West Bank. From Jerusalem to Jericho and up the Jordan Valley, see what annexation means to the social and economic life of affected Palestinians and hear directly from local farmers and villagers about what it means for them. The tour will be followed by a Q&A session. The facts on the ground. Annexation from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley virtual tour. Wednesday the 7th of October at 7.30pm. Register at the events page of fpmelbourne.org. That's fpmelbourne.org. 
3PMelbourne.org. 3 Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we've got David on the line from the Refugee Action Collective. Welcome, David. Pleasure to be here, Marissa. How are you? Good, thanks. Lovely to have you. Pretty good in unusual circumstances. But, yeah. Um, so, David, I was just sharing with listeners about some good news in regards to the bill that, that was that's going to hopefully not restrict mobile phones. To asylum yeah, seekers and refugees, could you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so you read out the full name, which I can't get my my head around. But basically, as far, the important thing was, it was a proposal from the Liberals from the coalition to uh, give guards and security in detention centres the ability to basically take away phones from everybody in detention. Not everybody in detention is a refugee or an asylum seeker but we know many of them are, particularly at places like the Mantra Hotel in Preston or up at Mitre on Camp Road in, in Broadmeadows. And I can tell you, refugees were absolutely petrified that this law would go through. Um, the phones are their, their lifeline. They're already um, under enormous psychological stress. Um, these are people, in some cases, who have been locked up by the Australian government for well over seven years now, um, both in, uh, on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and on Nauru and now here, here, pardon me, here in uh, Australia. And the idea that they wouldn't be able to talk to friends and family, <clears throat> that they wouldn't be able to um, take part in social media, find out what's going on. Excuse me, I'm just going to have to cough. That's OK. Sorry about that. Um, that they would be cut off from all the debates and issues and just the silly cat videos and all the things that helped them get through their day was absolutely distressing for them. And uh, the good news is is that at the end of last week, Jackie Lambie uh, announced that she would vote against the coalition bill in the Senate. Now, obviously, it's not all down to her. The Labour Party opposed it, the Greens opposed it, some other crossbenchers opposed it. But Jackie Lambie, in the end, was the swing vote, because, as we can imagine, One Nation was going to line up with the Liberals to take people's phones away. And the really good news is, is not just that Lambie voted against, which many of us argued she should have done from the get-go, is she, she reached out to people and said, tell me which way I should vote and tell me why. And a lot of us were very dubious about this. We were worried that it was going to end up being um, a disaster. Online polls are often really, really uh, distorted, bots and all sorts of things. But in the end, 75,000 people cast a, um, a valid vote in her online poll uh, from all over the country. Of those 75,000, about 30,000 were in Victoria. And it was absolutely amazing. Across Australia, 96.3% of people who made the effort to give Jackie Lambie some feedback said, vote down this bill. In Victoria, it was 97.5%. So around the country, only 3.7% of people said that phones should be taken away 
from refugees and asylum seekers in detention. Even in Queensland, which is one nation country, only 6.6% said take away the phone. So a huge number of good, decent people all around the country responded and helped push Lambie onto the right side of the debate. Now, we know that the coalition may have another crack at this in three months or six months. They're pretty vindictive. Uh, They hate refugees. They hate people filming the guards when the guards do the wrong thing. They hate refugees having any kind of hope or connection, being able to talk on the Zoom meetings to refugee activists around the country, all those sorts of things. But for the moment, the bill is dead. It was going to be discussed in the Senate this week. It's been taken off the the order paper, and that basically means for the moment Alan Tudge, Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison, they've had had to wander off with a bloody nose. On this occasion, we've managed to beat them back, and that's fantastic for civil liberties, and most importantly, it's fantastic for all the refugees and asylum seekers in detention around the country. The Do and Time show has actually interviewed quite a few refugees uh, on the Do and Time show, namely Ali. I'm not sure whether you know Ali from Perth. Um, um, I know, I, I know Anne Ali. Whether it's the same one, I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's okay, and, that's and also the... a couple of other Moz. I think we've interviewed Moz as well. He's oh a yeah, Moz speaker. has been absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, he was uh, speaking on a Zoom event for the Refugee Action Collective just on Friday. Um, he's uh. been a, 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 a real legend. And the fact, the fact is, without a phone, not only would he be cut off from family and friends, we everybody who care about refugees would be cut off from people like him. So it's it, it, it's in the hugely mantra, important he's in the Mantra Hotel in Preston. He's in the Mantra, yeah. The good news is that at least one one small thing we were able to organise as Refugee Action Collective for Moz and the other 60-odd guys in the Mantra in uh, Preston was on Saturday night. Uh, we uh, uh, were able to put images of people protesting uh, projected up onto a wall directly opposite the mantra. So all the people in the area who had sight of that wall could see it, but most importantly, all the refugees in the mantra would, would know it was there and were able to see images of people protesting. And it's been too long since we've been able to protest in person outside the mantra uh, for, the, for the freedom for these guys. Um, but at least on Saturday night, they saw a, they saw a light show and uh, we've, we've got it out there on Facebook and on Twitter if you follow the Refugee Action Collective, and uh, we may well do, do it all over again, bigger and better, uh, down the track. So how, was, that, was that actually a virtual thing, an online event? That was a virtual thing, and we planned that part, uh, part um, because of the restrictions under the current um, COVID, COVID guidelines, and obviously... Um, it's not possible without risking very, very big fines to have protests, so we decided to do a virtual protest. What we had hoped to do on, on Saturday during the day was to have two people protests outside the mantra um, because the latest regulations say you could have public gatherings of up to five people from two households, and that means there's loads of people when it was nice weather on the weekend, not so much today, out there having picnics, catching up with friends, all legally and healthily and all the rest of it. So what we planned to do on Saturday was to have two people, just two, both um, uh, a number number of pairs, 
all from the area, so all within five kilometres, all wearing masks, uh, all standing more than 1.5 metres apart and standing outside the mantra with placards calling for freedom for the guys inside. The police came down on us like a ton of bricks and said, you cannot protest. Yet two people can walk down the street wearing masks and have a chit-chat, but the moment they stop and hold up placards, bang, $5,000 fine each, and they even threatened a Refugee Action Collective member with a charge of incitement. Now, we think that is absolutely disgusting. We think uh, that COVID-safe protest is just as much a human right as being able to go to the shops, the doctor or the chemist. The right to protest, not just the, the right to have an opinion, but the right to express it publicly is absolutely essential. And as RAC, we believe it's been possible all the way through to protest safely within COVID guidelines, but at the same time effectively. So the fines were such a big threat and the threat of uh, an incitement charge, we called off the action on Saturday. Would you believe it? On Saturday morning, Preston Police rang one of our uh, activists and said, ah, we've had new advice. Yes, you can go ahead. And, of course, by that stage, it was too late for us to organise it. But we've now been told by the police that providing it's within five kilometres, two households, masks, social distance, all the things you need to do to be safe, we can protest. And we have a Refugee Action Collective meeting at 6.30 tonight, and I'm sure we're going to be discussing what we can do to take advantage of that new situation. Well, that is indeed interesting, isn't it? And what a turnaround, given that it's been extremely difficult to practice that democratic right to protest during the pandemic, and it's been very hard. It has indeed. We're not quite sure why they changed their mind. Mm. We did put out a media release. Um, we did write to the Attorney-General. It's possible that making a public fuss um, got things moving in our direction. It's possible that it's coincidence, but it's very, very welcome. I mean, we've been protesting in a COVID-safe way or trying to since the beginning of the pandemic, and many of your listeners might know that 30 rack supporters were fined $1,652 each on Good Friday, which was April the 10th. We're contesting those fines and we're hoping to get them um, uh, you know, uh, reject, rejected. That's $50,000 worth of fines for people who were driving in their cars to support refugees. And we had a car convoy to circle the Mantra Hotel. So the people in the cars posed no more of a health threat and people in their cars at that point, you could drive to Bunnings and go shopping. So there was no way that we were creating a health threat, and yet the police responded like um, it was a military operation and $50,000 worth of fines. And on that day, one of our um, long-time members, Chris Breen, was arrested in his home, held at Preston Police Station for nine hours and charged with incitement because, drum roll, this is his alleged crime, he posted a Facebook event for the car convoy. So now the police are using an obscure part of the 1958 Crimes Act to come down on people who, paste, who, who post Facebook events. Now, we're contesting that very heavily. We've had a lot of huge amount of support. If people go to the RAC website, there's a list as long as your arm of unions and politicians and community organisations and individuals um, who say that 
that charge and the, the fine should be dropped. Chris um, fronted court for the first time on Friday online. Um, it was just a procedural, it was a mention, not, there was no outcome, but we held an online rally in support of Chris um, of uh, more than 50 people on, on Zoom. And obviously, the next time he appears in court, we'll have people outside the front with, with banners saying safe, COVID-safe protesting is not a crime. Dissent and public um, opinion is not a crime. And we're hoping to get that charge dropped. And when is the next court date? It's uh, late in November, off the top of my head, I think the 19th. But I'd encourage people to uh, subscribe to RAC updates on email. You can go to our website and do that. Or just follow us on Facebook. We've got a very active Facebook page and Twitter, uh, Twitter account. So we'll have that information out there in good time. We haven't yet decided whether it'll be an in-person rally, an online rally, or a mixture of the two. But we're committed that every time Chris fronts court, um, on the, as a matter of principle, we'll be there with him in solidarity. And there's a real worry that the police will now start to use the charge of incitement as their go-to um, uh, charge. They've also charged um, a guy called uh, Jerome Small. Uh, Jerome was... Um, oh, sorry, Jerome. I should have known him for years. Jerome Small. Jerome was in... Uh, was one of the activists involved in the IMARC anti-mining uh, uh, com uh, conference protest at the beginning of this year. He's now been charged with incitement retrospectively. And we know that a whole range of uh, conspiracy theorists have been charged with incitement. The big worry is, long after COVID has come and gone, and hopefully one day it will have gone, um, long after you know, we're no long, you know, COVID is not front of mind, the police will be using incitement against unionists, against environmentalists, against Aboriginal activists and all sorts of, of, of good people. So defending Chris is a very, very important part of defending the right to protest for all sorts of organisations, particularly working class organisations that have no other resources apart from our ability to get on the streets. So the charge of incitement is not actually just part of the state emergency. That's a charge, a very outdated, old-fashioned charge, isn't it? Um, that's, that's, that's there to criminalise dissent. That's correct. Um, it, it, when the state of emergency is over, the potential for, say, a union organiser to be charged with incitement for organising a picket line um, is still very much with us. Um, it's part of the 1958 Act, and I think what's happened is some bright spark has read through the Act and said, is there anything here we haven't been using for a while? They've come across it, and now it's their favourite toy. So there must be six or seven people now, uh, two from the left and four or five from the conspiracy theory circles who have been charged now with incitement. So clearly the police are trying to make it um, normal operating procedure to hammer uh, activists with an incitement charge, and, of course, then people will become scared. It will have a chilling effect. On, on, on protest, um, because it's, if, if found guilty, it's, it's a criminal offence. Uh, you, you know, I can't. Uh, you know, whether or not you get a, you get a, um, um, you know, whether or not you get a, um, a criminal record or not is obviously down to the uh, to the to the magistrate or the judge. But the potential is there, and that's going to be very, very nervous. Uh, make people very, very nervous. So we want to head this one off at, off at the pass. If Chris is found not guilty, 
it will make the police think twice about using this charge against other people. This particular charge really is is focused very much on accusing or charging the person of planning something that hasn't actually happened yet. That's correct. You're, you are allegedly inciting someone to do something that is illegal or in the, in the current situation that is a breach of the, the health regulations. Now, um, the, Chris has been told by his lawyers that the maximum penalty that can be brought against you is the penalty that would apply for the crime. So, actually, ironically, if he's found guilty, the worst thing that can happen is that he's fined $1,652. But actually, of course, that's not the worst thing because um, if he ends up with a criminal record, it can have implications for all sorts of things, for his work and for his travel. And Chris is a high school teacher. He teaches at a high school in Broadmeadows. Um, uh, he's got the support of the Australian Education Union. But we don't want to be in a situation where people lose their jobs because they've got a, a small fine, but a criminal charge, a charge a finding against them, which then okay. damages their employment prospects. So basically, Melbourne Activist Legal Support, MELS, have had Chris as a speaker on quite a few panels, that, panel discussions that they've organised in, you know, in regards to the right to protest. And there have been other speakers as well. We, we had, they had Paul Silver, who's the nephew of David Dungar, speaking on a panel last week in regards to the Black Lives Matter protests in New South Wales and how they were being hampered. But in regards to the Refugee Action Collective, there's been quite a lot of targeting, hasn't there? Um, so let's hope that this incitement charge is dropped. I thought you actually had to go do prison time. No? Um, th that's not what Chris has told oh. us in, in RAC, is the penalty is the same penalty as as, a, as is appropriate for the crime that you are inciting. So I suppose if you incite, I don't know, attempted murder, then, then yes, you would do prison time for incitement. Yeah, I see that's what you're a, that's, Yeah, but, but if you're inciting people to allegedly break um, health regulations for which the fine is $1,652, that's the most they can punish you, except you could end up with a criminal record with obviously everything that that can imply. This is actually setting a very dangerous precedent, actually, because potentially it could follow, this incitement charge could follow in the footsteps of America, where, for example, in California and other, some other states, they have a three-strike and you're outlaw, that, you know, if you um, have three strikes against you and they charge you three times, you can actually have life imprisonment. So, you know, this is actually a very, very dangerous precedent that can be set. It, it, it certainly is, and I think it's going to make people think twice. If you know, if you're involved in a community organisation of whatever sort, and you're organising something which you think the police might be iffy about, who's going to put the Facebook event up if that's how you organise it? Because that's why Chris was arrested because he's the one uh, who allegedly uh, hit the you know the upload button on on the Facebook event. And that's the basis on which he's been charged. I mean, they took oh. his computers, they took his teenage son's computers and phones because they wanted to find evidence. Now, ironically, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's contested. It's going to be contested in court that Chris uploaded the event. It's going to be contested in court whether that actually falls under 
the charge of incitement, and I'll leave that to the lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, to, That's okay. You know, to no, work, but it's work good that we discussed that. Yep. Mm. And there's certainly nothing wrong with um, us talking about it. Chris Breen is not is not actually speaking on air today, and it's it's okay for us to speak for Chris. Absolutely, and we thank you for that reassurance. And we all do speak uh, speak up for him. It's um, yeah, it there's nothing wrong. Very, with that. very worrying. And you're right that RAC, as one of the more active um, uh, campaigns um, in 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 Melbourne, I'm not saying the most, but as one of the, the more active campaigns, we obviously are dealing with the police quite a lot because we've held uh, a lot of protests over, over the years. Some big, some small some in the city, some some out in the burbs. And um, there's certainly, you get the feel, um, those of our members who are actually dealing directly with the police, that they're having a bit, of a, a bit of a laugh, a bit of a chuckle at the situation we're in. And they're clearly hoping that what will come out of this is a shift in political culture in Victoria. Because up to now, and it's been this way probably since the Vietnam War days, if you want to protest in Victoria, you protest. And the police come to you and politely ask if they can help sort out traffic management. I think the Victorian police would love to be in the same situation as the New South Wales police, where oh. they can really say yes or no to a protest going ahead. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to push back again and make it clear to the police that the streets are our streets. We will decide to, dem uh, to demonstrate when we decide to demonstrate. And if they want to you know, uh, block off the traffic so no one gets hurt, that's absolutely fine. But we're not going to ask their permission to hold a rally for the refugees. It's absolutely outrageous, given also that Victorian Victoria police were also refusing to have the Refugee Action Collective hold a media conference following on from the action on Saturday when it was going ahead. Yeah, uh, that's, what we were, that's what we were told. Um, it's not clear whether their change of heart on the two people protests also applies to the media conference. Um, I haven't had any information about that, and it might, that may not have come up. Um, but yes, we were in the unbelievable situation that holding a media conference was potentially a cause for an incitement charge and for fines. Um, now, I don't know if those fines would have applied just to uh, members of RAC or whether, whether it would have applied to people who turned up to speak at the media conference. In the end, unfortunately, we had to give that one away. The, the risks were simply too high. But that's a worry in itself, the fact that um, a media conference cannot go ahead freely um, uh, is, is, is of great concern. And I think it shows the importance for Chris's case, but generally for civil liberties, of getting the union movement involved, because the union movement... Um, has held media conferences under COVID situations, uh, particularly, for instance, the Transport Workers Union about the job losses in um, in the on, in the airlines. I know that they've held a number of media conferences at the airport where people have, you know, members of the union have stood in the background with masks, but giving moral support to whoever it is that's speaking. And of course, the police don't touch them. The police are a little bit more wary about touching the unions, and that's why. Uh, in RAC, we've put a lot of emphasis on getting support from our brothers and sisters and the unions for our, our, our rights and for, the, uh, for Chris's defence campaign. And I think there's been a lot of recognition um, that if we go down, that they're next in the firing lines. We've had a great response from unions in terms of support.
David, thank you so much for coming onto the program and for explaining the specifics of what's happened, not only with Chris Breen, but also with the the mobile phone situation and, and the bill has, has been scrapped, which is fantastic. And, you know, I just simply can't resist making the following comment in regards to Jackie Lambie, that she voted against this bill, but she voted for the Medivac bill to stop that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I mean, sorry obviously it's good news. That. It's good yeah. news that she's voted against it, or she's, you know, she... In fact, she'll never cast a vote because the government is too gutless to put it up because they'll no go down to defeat. So there never will be a vote in the Senate, at least on the bill no. in its current form. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's widely held amongst refugee activists that she was suckered around the question of the Medivac legislation. She, that, you know, she said that she'd been given important information. No one has ever found out what this important information is. No. Uh, and mean, meanwhile... Uh, Men and women brought here under the Medivac legislation are lingering in Australia without proper access to uh, to medical treatment. Um, and ironically, there has been a steady flow, particularly from Nauru, of refugees brought here for treatment, even though Medivac has gone, because the government recognises that Nauru doesn't have the facilities to deal with the kind of complex issues that many refugees face. So the whole thing has been... Um, you know, a sort of a, 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 a secret, a secret stuff up by the government, and Jackie Lambie contributed to that. So, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Jackie, for this one. But uh, yeah, many of us have long memories on other issues. Yeah, so people, the, the, the science seekers have got their their mobile phones back. It's approximately four twenty nine, and we're going to be speaking shortly um, with senior lecturer, Faculty of Law at Monash Uni. Um, Dr. Maria O'Sullivan, and we're going to be continuing our discussion in regards to the right to protest. David, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. For the first time, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association will hold the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture via Zoom. On the 17th of October, former Western Australian MP Melissa Park will present her lecture, The Conscious Pariah, How Distortions of Facts, Contortions of Logic and Assassinations of Character are used against critics of Israel while it poses as the plucky democracy and the eternal victim. For free registration, visit www.afopa.com.au. That's www.afopa.com.au. Australian Friends of Palestine Association is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time Show, 3CR Community Radio. And coming up very soon, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Maria O'Sullivan, Senior Lecturer, Faculty of Law, and a member of the Carsten Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. And we'll be continuing our discussion in regards to the right to protest and talking about the right to protest in a pandemic. Hello, Maria. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to have you. Now, Maria, oh, I'm great. wondering... Yeah, no, it's all good. And thank you for coming on at such short notice, too. 
Now, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what's been going on in regards to the law about the right to protest, because obviously there are public health imperatives and they need to be balanced against the right to protest. Can you talk about that? Sure. So a general human rights principle is that certain rights can be limited. There are rights that can't be, like the right to life, and of course public health is associated with that. But um, the right to protest draws on freedom of assembly and freedom of expression. And both of those rights internationally can be limited, um, but it has to be necessary and proportionate. So that's the at international law. And then obviously in Victoria we have a charter which um, reflects that. Then there's a bit of a complication federally because we have a protection for political communication in the Constitution. But if I can just talk generally about human rights, that's the sticking point, I think, that if okay. the government does have public health reasons, they can limit freedom of expression and assembly. So how... How do you balance that out? Because obviously there's, there have been quite a few instances all over Australia, but particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, about the criminalisation of protest. Yes, and that's another thing. So I guess there's the first question of... Um, and I haven't mentioned freedom of movement too, so that's a problem because the stay-at-home directions actually don't even um, try and limit expression. They actually just make people stay at home so they can't protest. Um, so it would depend on the severity of the health evidence. Now, currently with stage four lockdowns in Victoria, I think having a physical protest is quite difficult to justify. But if people think about sort of the first period that we had restrictions where, you know, we could move, we had to have a, a necessary reason, but we could move for things like exercise and so forth. So my argument would be protest has to be seen as a really important constitutional and human rights activity that, you know, if people are allowed to go to Chadstone and shop or exercise in that sort of stage one um, scenario, then that's where the balancing um, is proportionate. That is, you say, well, the health evidence is not that serious, so therefore we can allow things like protest. Now, going on to the criminalisation, that's sort of a new thing that's just been done um, particularly in Victoria in relation to the Mantra Hotel and I think you've been talking about the Chris Breen uh, case. So that's very concerning because it targets one particular individual and I feel that's being used to stop people protest and I have a great concern that that's really targeting the, uh, the organiser of a protest. Indeed, and, and I believe he's having... He, he just had his mention actually on Friday, Maria. Mm. And and that's a problem because my my argument would be let the protest go ahead and allow people to socially distance according with the directions that are in place, but don't try and prevent the protest by criminalising the uh, the organiser because that has certain repercussions if someone gets a criminal record, etc., and and that can even even limit their ability to travel because certain countries won't let you in if you've got a criminal record. So that's a very serious measure, and I don't think that is proportionate. And how would you be able to um, 
draw upon the cha- the Victorian Charter of Human Rights to to help with 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 talking about the right to protest. Yeah, great to que- great question. The there's no such thing as the right to protest, and as human rights scholars, we tend to do that um, or refer to that as shorthand. So as I said, yes, yeah, um, freedom of expression and assembly is actually specifically mentioned in the Victorian Charter. Now there are two issues. First of all. And that really only relates to legislation. And so normally if something's in legislation, then it has to be um, like scrutinised by a parliamentary committee and they have to have a statement of compatibility. That's a problem because, as people would know, the directions are just done by the government, by the health um, authorities. So they're not actually um, legislation as such, although they're authorised by legislation. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is this problem of limitation, and that um, limitations are acceptable under the Charter as long as they're necessary and proportionate. So the government has tried to argue it is necessary to have stay-at-home directions, which impliedly prevent protests because of the health evidence. And also I think there's an argument that unplanned protest in, in the form of a march can't really accord with social distancing, even though the organisers may want, want it to. Interestingly, there was a, a march towards the beginning of the pandemic, or it might have been more in the middle. I'm not sure if you heard about the deaths in custody um, protests that happened in Victoria and indeed all over the country. And there were sanitizers, there were masks, and yet the the police really came down on the protesters. Yes. Um, if I can speak to... Yeah, so the, the, obviously the Black Lives Matter protests sort of in June and July, in some states they were allowed to go ahead. There was um, quite a lot of litigation in New South Wales about this and um, there was a technicality which meant that it was allowed to go ahead. That actually relates to getting um, a permit to protest and, again, this is... Um, a little bit uncertain because you don't actually need a permit to protest, although if you do, you have to do it seven days before, and then that means you've got more protection, I think, under the law. Um, but, yeah, there were, there were differing approaches to that according to the health evidence. So uh, in June, I think it was, the Black Lives Matter protest was allowed to go ahead, but then a few weeks later, another protest wasn't. And why is that? Because the health evidence had changed and there was um, a, a concern that the social distancing, um, A, would not occur and also that the, the, the cases had increased. Yeah, it, look, it's, it's a grave concern and there's so much to balance out, but... It sounds to me as though there's there's quite a lot of criminalisation here. Yes, and um, as I said, that's a concern because actually the UN Special Rapporteur on Assembly and Freedom of Expression has said that protests should not be criminalised. He, he talks about a chilling effect, that is that people are not going to organise or participate in protest if they think they're going to get a criminal record. Thanks so much for, for explaining that, Maria, because I, I think a lot of listeners, you know, that listen to this show are very much into um, building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. We have a lot of listeners that um, are into prisoner rights and, and refugees and asylum seekers. So it's it's an interesting mix as far as, you know, getting that protest out there. 
Now, moving on now to the COVID restriction um, about the curfew and the recent challenge to the curfew heard in the Victorian Supreme Court last week. Can you talk about that? Mm. Yeah, so um, that's been... Um, I, I don't know much about the um, applicant, um, but she, yeah, she does yeah. own a small business, and so... She instituted proceedings about a month ago, I think, but then obviously the curfew was revoked. I think it was due to be revoked on um, some, somewhere around the 26th of October. It was revoked early, and some would argue that that was because this challenge was instituted. So in the hearing, they were talking about um, the evidence of the health uh, authority a person who I think it was Associate Professor Giles, who actually uh, made the order to do the curfew, and it was done fairly quickly, sort of on a Sunday, and then it came into effect on the Sunday night. And there was a bit of a dispute about whether it was Premier Andrews who actually made the decision to institute the curfew or whether it was done by the Health Secretary. And actually, it was supposed to be the Health Secretary that did it. So... One argument was this sort of fairly technical public law argument about who was the correct decision maker and did the health secretary act under the dictation of the premier. But then there was also some issues about the effect of of the curfew on um, that particular person and whether it it constituted detention, which is a very interesting argument. Um, And the court heard about cases from Europe where they said, well, you don't need to be in prison to be detained. You can actually argue that if your freedom of movement is constrained, then it can equate to detention. So um, on Monday, uh, so it was last week, um, yeah, sorry, last Friday, the judge reserved the judgment and it will be considered as a priority case. So I would imagine that um, he, he will hand down judgment in the next few weeks or months, definitely before Christmas, I would say. So, so basically, generally speaking, this particular woman was arguing that her business would, is being was being ruined because there was a curfew in place. Yes, yes, and that also um, she was constrained in in other ways because she couldn't leave home. So that's where the detention issue came into play. And um, I mean, I only listened to certain days because it went on for four or five days. Um, but yeah, I did listen to the detention arguments, uh, which were very interesting. And there was also actually an interesting legal argument about whether she had standing, which might interest your listeners because if you have if you want to challenge something in court, you often have to show that you have standing. And that's a lot easier if you're an organisation like some refugee organisation, it's a little bit more difficult if you're an individual and you're being affected like any member of the public. And so that was the argument in the court as well. They said that the applicant was affected by the curfew in the same way that everyone in Melbourne was affected. And so therefore she didn't have standing. Yeah, apparently the the curfew is deemed to be necessary because of the public health crisis. Would you say that's true? No, and again, this is something that the barrister for the applicant was arguing. They said they could of, and, and this is something that comes under the charter as well, the the public health imperative could have been addressed by having a more localised approach. So if there were hot spots, for instance, that the curfew did not need to be Melbourne-wide, it could have been in certain areas where there were problems. Um, 
But I know that that's been problematic, obviously, with the tower lockdowns in Kensington and Fitzroy. Um, there are also problems with sort of discrimination and targeting if you do that. So I think if you're going to have a localised suburb-by-suburb curfew, then you need to, to justify that. But, yeah, so that was one of her arguments, that it wasn't necessary to have it um, for the whole of Melbourne. It really has been an extremely long lockdown, hasn't it? Yes, and again, for, for those of us with children at school, having to homeschool, there's all sorts of equality problems, I think, with, um, uh, you know, some people might have a home office and be able to um, work remotely and therefore handle the, the homeschooling. Um, other people, you know, I think, and other children might be disadvantaged. So there's all these other complications apart from restrictions of freedom of movement, all these other um, implications that I, I don't think haven't, haven't been foreseen. And we'll only re, really be finding out the full effect of these COVID restrictions in the next few years. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to mention that lockdown because we have, we have discussed the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and we've looked at freedom of movement. And, I mean, would it be fair to say that really today's interview is not just about protesting, but it's also about looking at human rights? Oh, exactly. Um, there is this particular issue with protest, I think, because, um, you know, when you're talking about the refugee and asylum seeker population in immigration detention, you know, we need people to be advocating for them and to raise consciousness about them. But yes, more broadly, I think there is um, an argument about whether some of our freedom of movement restrictions are in fact proportionate to the health evidence. And I guess we're, we're putting a lot of um, faith in the, in the health authorities, and I think that's um, largely well-placed. But there is a school of thought which says we need to um, have more input. So, for example, with the tower lockdowns, that it would have been preferable to have community groups involved in that particular lockdown and have social workers, for example, and not for it to just be a police response. So a more participatory um, sort of approach to how the health directions are implemented. That was an absolute disaster, that tower lockdown. Mm. And, mm. And, and too many police and so many vulnerable communities. And, and, and I think what was really sad about that whole lockdown too is that you had a lot of um, mainstream media and also certain politicians like Pauline Hanson saying that these people are all drunks, which is so not yes. true. You've got a lot of educated communities and families that live in, live in the towers. Yes, and a lot of long-term residents um, that have been there for many years and they have a very, you know, it's a very vital community and cultural um, environment. And that's, again, you know, as a lawyer, I tend to focus a lot on what is justified by the law. And I think that's only one part of the piece. And you've really highlighted something there that there's an argument about what is good law, so what's justified under the Charter, but then also what is, um, you know, how we make it socially acceptable. And I think we're finding that out at the moment, that, you know, the need to communicate clearly to affected communities about what the COVID restrictions are and to need, uh, the need to communicate how they're justified so people do abide by those restrictions. So the Charter then is not legislated, you say? 
Oh, so when the, the so there's the Public Health Act, which allows the health authority to issue these directions, but the directions which actually restrict all our rights, like the stay-at-home directions and the gathering restrictions, they're all done by the health department, like the secretary. Um, you know, it might be Brett, Brett Sutton. It depends on, on who's given the delegated power, but it's not... The directions aren't passed through Parliament. So okay. the Empowering Act is is a piece of legislation which was passed, but the actual directions are what we call executive instruments. So they're not passed through Parliament, and there's good reason for that. It's thought that they um, are emergency responses, so they need to be done... Um, you know, quickly, and so they're not put through Parliament. But if we compare our approach to the UK, for example, the UK has been putting things through Parliament, um, regulatory and legislative measures, so um, that's received a little bit more parliamentary scrutiny. And that would include protest as well? Yes, and the problem with protest is that the stay-at-home directions don't explicitly allow protest. They say you can only leave home for work, education, exercise, etc. And the police and the authorities have interpreted that as not including protest. And that's interesting because the UK just a few weeks ago did explicitly mention that protest could be included as a reason to leave home. Um, but it did say, obviously, you have to have a COVID-safe plan for it and observe social distancing. And I believe also the Netherlands has also introduced a protest exception to their stay-at-home directions. Well, Australia better hurry up. Exactly, exactly. So just a final question in regards to the omnibus bill. Has, is that being debated at the moment? I believe um, it will be debated next week. Um, I forget now when the Parliament's due to come in. It has been passed by the lower house in the Victorian Parliament and it's due to be debated by the Legislative Council, I think, in the next two weeks. And the two main things to that are that it allows what we call preventative detention. So if you have someone who's been, um, you know, already convicted of other offences or perhaps has already breached self-isolation, they're seen as high risk. Or alternatively, which is really concerning, if they have some sort of mental illness or intellectual incapacity, the police can say, well, we don't think you're going to abide by self-isolation, so we're going to detain you. So that's the first issue. It allows for preventative detention. And that's really controversial because normally you only detain someone on the basis of what they've done in the past not what they're going to do or likely to do in the future. So that's terribly controversial. And then secondly, it allows for other officers, and particularly, you know, these um, PSOs, these, I think they're called protective yeah. service officers, the people, um, they are given about three months training. They're given the same sort of status almost as a police officer, but they get, mu they get much less training. And they're the people that you will see on the, at the train stations. So... The government has been talking about authorising them to order this detention. So, again, that's a, that's a serious concern, particularly if we're dealing with um, people with a mental illness and you've got a protective service officer who hasn't had as much training as a police officer but is given those same powers. 
So that's been um, yeah, the subject of a lot of concern, not only from myself, but also from Liberty Victoria and the um, barristers group in Victoria as well. Indeed, that is a concern because, honestly, that that actually has a cause for discrimination as well and also making mistakes because, I mean, how on earth would a police officer or a PSO be able to ascertain whether a person is intellectually disabled or mentally ill? Yes, exactly. Now, the government did mention things like um, cultural officers. So, again, you'd have a social worker. So I'm very much in favour of that. But then, if so, the legislation has to spell that out. That is, that an authorised officer under the Act can include someone who is culturally, uh, you know, a cultural officer or some community worker. But I certainly would be concerned about the use of PSOs. Look, such a bill sounds absolutely potentially disastrous given that we already have powers in place and I'm assuming this is only during if it does pass during the state of emergency yes although I think um, there's a bit of a uh, an issue with the uh, obviously I think when the state of emergency ends but I believe this omnibus bill it does only go to March or April next year so we call that a sunset clause And again, that's something that lawyers always look at. If it's an emergency provision, it has to have an end date. And and that that is included in the the bill. Sounds extremely decronian, Maria. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. I hope you didn't mind me asking those questions. I, I just felt that that was quite relevant to our discussion. Oh, absolutely, and we have to look at the whole picture as well. Um, Protest is part of that, but also, and I think in closing, I would just say the government has said, oh, well, you know, we'll use these powers correctly, but I think that's putting a lot of faith in in authorities, and I think it's always better to have clarity in the law rather than allowing authorised officers to have a huge amount of discretion. Absolutely, and we all know that increased police powers can affect vulnerable communities, or will affect vulnerable communities. Yes, and there's been evidence of that, um, very clear evidence in the imposition of fines. There's been things on social media which uh, show clear evidence that the fines have not been applied consistently. And if people have any concerns about being fined unfairly or have had police harassment, don't hesitate to contact the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre Police Accountability Project and Google that. Yes, they're fantastic. They are indeed. We've interviewed Anthony Kelly quite a few times on this show, in fact. Yes. Maria, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Do you have any final comments? No, it's a pleasure. And um, if anyone wants to read any of those, um, you know, further into the issue, um, they can just Google me and the conversation and I've got a couple of explainers about the COVID laws and protest on the online repository called The Conversation. That would be most useful. Thanks a lot, Maria. Take care. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Bye-bye. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. 
or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Do and Time show and we're nearing the end of our show. Thank you to both our guests. Thank you to David Glanz and Dr Maria O'Sullivan and they're both from Victoria and we had a, a most interesting show today about um, human rights, the right to protest and looking at the, the pandemic. It's approximately 4.55 and Beyond Zero is up next. We're going to be going out now with our theme song Black fella, white fella from the Rumpy Band, and tune in every Monday from four to five for the Doing Time Show. Take care of each other. Bye bye.